The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. It's wonderful to be here at uh, Fair Havens this morning, and uh, I feel a little bit overdressed, but my uh, assistant, Myrna, said it's suit and tie on Sunday morning, so I put my suit and tie on, and... Uh, after the hip-hop, I'm definitely overdressed this morning. <laughs> I think it's important to understand that <clears throat> if you listen to the... Uh, I've never heard fresh IE before. I'm more of a Schumann, Mozart, and Beethoven person myself. <laughs> but if you listen to the poetry and the rhyming of uh, these guys, there's some wonderful biblical truth tied up in their lyrics. You know, the call of Christ for all of us is that we would see the kingdom of God established in the world. Uh, The original mandate given to us as God's people, as God's children, as created by God, was to have dominion over all things. And our task as believers today is to redeem culture, the redemption of culture. I grew up in a context where, uh, for the particular group I was involved in, the church that I was, uh, the church denomination I was involved in, you know, some drum beats and some... Uh, musical instruments were seen as almost demonic. Well, there's no such thing as a demonic B-flat. There's only a B-flat. We can either use it for God or for the enemy because all men and women are covenant keepers or covenant breakers as they stand in relationship to God. You may not particularly like the style. We're all, t- we're all different people. We have different tastes and so forth. But I encourage you to encourage guys like uh, Larry and uh, Rob in what they're doing, because out there, among uh, university students, among young people, among youth, uh, young, uh, this generation of young people in all kinds of different walks of life, it is a challenging place to live and to work and to minister. The truth hasn't changed, but the way in which we sometimes articulate and express that, it needs to be uh, altered. You know, John and Charles Wesley, who were uh, very dear to my heart, their hymn writing, you know that they set some of their hymns to the contemporary tunes of popular culture in their day, uh, that's what they were. They were set to some, in fact, pub tunes. So let's not forget that when we listen to guys like Larry and Rob. Listen to the words because God looks on the heart. And there's some profound and deep poetry there. And in fact, it was a wonderful introduction to what I want to say this morning and throughout the rest of this week. Because I want to talk to you this week about the book of Genesis. And so for the 10 sessions that we have together, I'm going to be looking at Genesis 1 through 11 with you. Genesis 1 through 11 root us as Christians in the Christian worldview. Everything that we've heard sung this morning and everything that we've sung together this morning is rooted for its meaning and its significance in the book of Genesis. We've heard about redemption, we've heard about deliverance, we've heard about Christ, and we've been singing about Christ and the name of Jesus. Well, who is Christ? Christ, according to the, uh, the uh, gospel writer Luke, Luke Acts, is the son of Adam, as well as the son of God. Did you know Adam is in the genealogy of Christ? Did you know nothing we've said and sung this morning has any meaning without the book of Genesis, without what God has revealed about human origins, about our fall from grace, 
about our fall from the garden of God. I was at a wedding yesterday. And at this wedding, I was listening very closely to what the minister was saying because, as you know, a wedding has changed its meaning in Canadian culture recently. What is marriage? How do you know what marriage is? And the one, uh, one line in the uh, service as he was speaking to the bride and groom, and I've married seven years with two children, he said, marriage was established by God in the time of man's innocence. You know, there was a time of human innocence. There was a time of man's innocence before the fall. And that's why we need, as we've been singing in this last hymn, redemption from the curse. Why does Canada not understand what marriage is today? Why has Canada sunk to the level that it now has with respect to its legislation? You know, laws don't uh, spring out of nowhere and then they just pop up. Laws are the product of an ultimate faith commitment, and that ultimate faith commitment is essentially religious, and all religions have a God. The God of modern Canada is humanism, is man. Because there's no law word from above, above man, a word from God. There is therefore only man's law word, and therefore he thinks he can change the law on a whim. Why are we losing the, um, excuse me, this Britney Spears microphone around my neck is a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah, just adjust that. Can't turn my head left or right there. Okay. There is a law word above man's word, and it's from God. God tells us who and what we are, where we have come from, where we're going, what we need. That's what the Word of God, the Scriptures as God's revelation about God's activity in history is all about. And the situation, the difficulty for Canada today is we've lost the comprehension of the Christian worldview rooted in the book of Genesis. And because that worldview has been lost, therefore people's opinions and therefore legislation eventually is changed. Who are the legislators, the politicians, the lawyers the judges of tomorrow, they are sat in today's university classrooms. Who are they? They're the young people and the children sat in this room. And if we want to change the future, if we want to change tomorrow, then we have to understand who and what we are rooted in the Word of God. God's Word gives us a true understanding of the world. And there's no book more important than the book of Genesis. In order to kick off, I just want to read from 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy in chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'm just going to read the first seven verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Savior and Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord. I, urge, I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. You know, one of the biggest problems in the church today is people teaching strange doctrines. Departures from the Word of God. Departures from God's Word in the end, work themselves out practically, eventually, in how we understand culture and law and everything else. 
Nor pay attention, in verse 4 he says, to myths. That's the Greek word muthos. It literally means lying fables, falsehoods. Neither pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation, rather furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love, from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. You know, that's the kind of world we live in today. People making confident assertions here and there, left and right, based on myths and endless genealogies and fables, stories about origins. And I encounter stories and fables and myths about origins on every university campus in Canada today, and sadly in many of our churches, that is losing, meaning that we are losing our anchorage and our moorings in a Christian understanding of human life and of the world in which we live. How do you know that you're a sinner? How do you know that you should wear clothes? How do you know what marriage is? How do you know what human government is? How do you know where this universe came from? How do you know a Savior has been promised? How do you know where all the different people groups came from in the earth today? How do you know where all the language groups came from in the world today? Well, the Bible tells us, Genesis 1 through 11, Now, there has been a great deal of skepticism, of course, about these passages, and as a Christian apologist, I'm all too familiar with it. I will touch on some of those throughout these 10 sessions that we're going to have together. As an evangelist and as an apologist myself, I have a deep interest in the message of the book of Genesis because it connects us with history. Now, we live in a culture and a generation which is disconnected from the past perhaps like no other generation before it. You know, there's a survey conducted in the UK recently. I come from the UK, as you can probably tell, and moved here just a couple of years ago. Survey conducted said that most young people didn't know what the Second World War was. Now, that's a culture that is disconnected from history. Didn't know what the Second World War was. My parents were alive during the Second World War. I'm only 31 years of age, but you see, history is seen as unimportant. Why? Why is it seen as unimportant in our world today? Well, it's unimportant because it isn't created and governed and controlled by God and His providence. It isn't leading anywhere. It's sprung up by chance. It's going on in the chaos. There is no meaning in history. There is no plan to history. There is no purpose, no teleology, no design in history. It is meaningless. Therefore, why be interested in history at all? You know, when I was being educated in history at school, we didn't actually study kings and queens and events of history. We looked at pictures, which they called sources. And from those sources, we had to construct what we felt they meant. That's called post-modernity. History is governed by the reader, not by the writer of history. And so what history means, well, history may mean something to you and something else to you and something else to you. Tom, Dick, and Harry all have a different idea about what history is all about. But God in Scripture gives us an understanding of who and what we are in His history. Because it's 
created, this world is created and governed by God in His providence. How can God prophesy through the prophets? How can He foretell events through the prophet Isaiah that are going to take place 700 years later? Well, because He governs history. How do we know, as John said just before I came up to speak, that we're on the winning side? That we can be encouraged and strengthened as we sim hymns like the one we've done tonight? Well, because we know and Scripture tells us that we are on the winning side, even if at times it doesn't appear like we are. Because God governs history. It's so important if we are to reach out to our culture and our generation to understand the Christian worldview, and perhaps no book of Scripture outlines it more clearly for us, provides the foundations for it than the book of Genesis. And we must learn to present our case just as the Apostle Paul presented his case. You know, the Apostle Paul presented the case for Christianity in Acts chapter 17 when he stood up at the Areopagus, the highest intellectual court in the then known world in Athens, and he spoke to the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Have you read that passage in Acts chapter 17? And Paul begins with the doctrine of creation and God's providence in history. And leads on then to the manifestation of Christ and his resurrection from the dead as the final proof. The demonstration that, that God has fixed a time when he will judge the living and the dead. When transcendence and imminence will coalesce once again, just as they did at creation, and Christ will come. And the elements will be burnt up with an intense heat, and the living and the dead will be judged. And the world, this universe as we know, will be remade and restored. Do you believe that? See, that is the Christian worldview. That is the world about which Christ speaks one which is going to be remade. One of the most important things that we need to understand as Christians today is that we are back in a period of time as evidenced by our legislation here in Canada. And I just hope that this works in some way. This is not one of my slides. I borrowed this. Is that we are concerned as believers about reaching our culture and about reaching our generation and about people understanding what we are saying as believers to them from our churches to our neighbors, to university students. And the Christian message is built upon Christ, who is first creator and then redeemer of the world. You can't know Christ as redeemer unless you understand Christ as creator. What does the word of God say about Christ? He is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. In Him, through Him, to Him, Paul says, are all things. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through Him. And without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. Everything has been created by Christ and is sustained by Him. And upon this, Christ Jesus crucified and raised from the dead... It's given to us in the New Testament. And finally, the consummation of all things. We believe we're heading for that time, that moment in history, the only portion of Scripture yet to be fulfilled, that sure word of prophecy, the consummation of all things. But here's the world over here. This was the world of the ancient church, the pagan world. And I put it to you this morning that this is the world 
largely of modern Canada today. I'm sorry for those of you who are 40, 50, 60 plus. The world that you knew, the Canada that you knew is gone. And the sooner we wake up and realize it, the better. There is no, perhaps no nation in the world today who has a greater Christian heritage than my home, England. Oxford University in Oxford where our office, apologetics office was for RZM when I worked with the European office. The motto of Oxford University is, the Lord is my light. And yet one of my friends and colleagues, the chaplain of Oxford University, was recently dismissed from his job for, he's the chaplain of one of the colleges at Oxford University, was dismissed from his job for articulating to a student who came to him privately and asked him the biblical view of sexuality. He gave it to him. A tribunal was set up because the student complained. He was dismissed. Something like 7% of the UK's population, 5 to 7% are found in church on a Sunday morning. We are living in a time now where there is no Christian basis. When people don't even know, in young, young people are struggling to understand what the First and Second World War was. Is it any surprise that they're not that concerned about the origin of the universe, our first parents, the history of the ancient world, and so on? And so when the Christian message is preached in our contemporary context, they ask, what strange doctrine is this? You know, when they first heard Paul the Apostle speaking in Athens, in the marketplaces is where he began, the actual philosophers heard him as he was talking to ordinary people in the marketplace. And they said, you're bringing some very strange things to our ears. What are these strange doctrines that you're talking about? We want to hear more about this come to the Areopagus, and that's why Paul delivered his address on Mars Hill. What is this idle babbler talking about? That's what they said. And you know, when Christians today in the Western world make a clear proclamation about Christ, people ask, what strange doctrine is this? That's my experience as a Christian apologist among today's young people. Most of them have never heard of Moses, the author, compiler of the book of Genesis. Prince of Egypt is probably the cartoon, is the most contact they've had. And some of the older generation, Charlton Heston in uh, the Ten Commandments. But that's about it. This contemporary world we live in is almost as ignorant as the pagan world. Therefore, if we do not learn to present our case as the scriptures do, we're going to be batting, as we say in England, on a sticky wicket. That's a cricketing allegory. It is difficult to articulate the faith because everybody has a certain frame of reference. They believe certain things as an ultimate criteria for truth. They have a certain perspective upon reality. Everybody, whether they've thought it through or not, they assume a certain perspective. And into that, they fit all the pieces of the puzzle. If you wander up to somebody and say, repent, Jesus died for your sins, and they don't understand that you're talking about the God of creation, where human beings fell in the garden of God and the curse came, and that's what sin is, and that's why there's suffering and evil and sin in this world, they haven't got a clue what you're talking about. What is repentance? What is sin? Strawberries and cream? Is that sin? Cohabiting isn't even sin anymore in this culture. 
That wasn't sin in my parents' generation. And now we legislate immorality and enshrine it in law. That is the Canada we're living in today. And I really want to encourage you this week. How many people, I wonder, are in this room? 200? 250? How many people were in the upper room on the day of Pentecost? The ancient world was transformed. You know, by the third century, by the fourth century, men were Christianizing the entire Roman Empire. 120 people in the upper room. How many people in Canada? 30 million? There is a reconstructive army of people here today if we will take the word of God seriously and will walk in the power of the Holy Spirit to transform a culture. I don't want to depress anybody this week by talking about the realities of what it means to live in the Western world today, but I want to encourage you that we can be a transforming influence But we can't transform a culture if we don't understand that culture and aren't rooted in the Word of God as our foundation. And we don't see the significance of it. Most of us think it's enough to say ABC, accept, believe, commit. It isn't. Accept what, believe what, commit to what. Put your hand in the air. What am I putting my hand up for? To fill a God-shaped hole in my life? While some people fill that with crystals and feng shui and going to the gym. Who and what is man? Who is man's creator? Where is he from? Where is he going? What is the meaning of his life? There are four basic worldview questions. Origin, meaning, morality, destiny. What is my origin? Where have I come from? What is therefore the meaning of my life? What does it mean? How should I live morality? What are my ethics to be then? What is my ultimate law? Who is law giver? And destiny, where am I going? Where is my life headed? These are all foundational things that are dealt with in the book of Genesis. Now, the only useful knowledge that we can have is practical knowledge. So I don't want to fill your head simply with propositional truth and information over these uh, 10 sessions together, but to begin to understand how practically God's Word applies concerning human origins. Because it gives us a framework through which we filter. It's like a theological filter. Give me somebody who goes wrong with the book of Genesis, and I will give you somebody who's gone wrong in a number of other key places. Go wrong on sexual ethics, it's because you've gone wrong somewhere in Genesis. Go wrong on the doctrine of judgment is because there's gone wrong in Genesis. It's foundational. I've just bought an old house built in 1880 in Stouffville. If the foundation goes in an old house, what starts to happen? Well, the walls start to crack. That's the telltale sign. of Problems with the foundation, is it not? Cracks start to appear in the walls, the ceilings, the plaster. And you know you've got a significant problem with the foundation or with the house shifting about. Well, this is what happens if we go wrong at foundations. This is what's happening when the scripture says, when the foundations are destroyed, what shall the righteous do? Well, we're the righteous if we're the people of God. And the foundations are being destroyed. Therefore, we need this lens, this foundation through Christ 
which he has given to us in his word and foundationally in the book of Genesis. There's no neutrality with respect to God. There's no neutrality in the world today. There is nobody who sits as a detached brain weighing dispassionately the evidence for Christ. We are either covenant keepers or we're covenant breakers. Nobody is neutral with respect to Christ. There is an ultimate antithesis that exists between the Christian view of reality, that is one that's created, sustained, and governed by Christ and the Godhead. And then there is the non-Christian perspective, which is essentially that it is chance, it is chaos. There is no ultimate meaning, value, or purpose in the world. But it's exciting to be looking at this book, the book of Genesis, in a time of discovery. And it never surprises me when I flick through the scientific journals, which I do read. I try and keep up on scientific reading, because, of course, it relates to the question of origins. But now, today, there are great questions in the scientific community. Reviewing now things like the constancy of the speed of light in a vacuum. Now, if you're not a mathematician, you may not understand the significance of this, but Einstein's uh, constructs, for example, the Big Bang Theory upon which is based upon some of Einstein's mathematics, is now up for review because we've looked through a large telescope and we're not sure that light has been a universal constant anymore. And then there's big organizations in the United States now developing called the ID movement, the intelligent design movement, where many non-Christian scientists are recognizing the untenability of the evolutionary perspective upon reality. And then there's archaeologists digging around. And just in the last couple of weeks, I've been reading about the unearthing of the Pool of Siloam, which was said to be a theological fiction of the Gospel of John. And they think they may have now found David's palace. A famous archaeologist digging in Jerusalem has found King David's palace. King David has long been thought to have been a fictitious biblical character by leading liberal scholars. Am I surprised when these things happen? No, because this is God's word and it is God's truth. But if, we are, if our understanding of the world and of reality is governed by whether they've unearthed the right catacombs or whether the prevailing view in the scientific community agrees with Scripture, if that's what controls my reading of Scripture, then every few years I'm going to be reinterpreting my reinterpretation of my reinterpretation of the Bible. As Augustine said, if you believe what you like in the Bible and reject what you like, it's not the Bible you believe but yourself. Let me repeat that. If you believe what you like in the Bible and reject what you like, it is not the Bible you believe but yourself. I'm 31 years of age. I know I don't look it, but I try and keep a bit of a beard so that I don't look 15. And I recognize this fact, that my generation and the generation coming up under me, unless we recover biblical Christianity and the Christian worldview, our nation will be pagan in a generation, fully-fledged. Who and what is man? Well, the creation of God is best understood when we look at the world, because our view of creation doesn't rest upon scientific theories, it rests upon Christ. By faith, the writer of Hebrews says, we believe that the heavens were framed by the word of God, and the things which do appear are not made out of things which are visible. The transcendent God acted 
And he began with divine fiat, that is, there was nothing, and he called this universe into existence. And you know, the powers and means that God used to call this universe into existence when transcendence and imminence, that's God's activity, creative activity and his sustaining power, when they coalesced during creation week, we can't know, we will never know fully what went on that week. We won't know fully what, by that I mean, we don't know what laws and powers God used to call things into existence from nothing, because you and I can only reshape what we have, what is here. I can take some clay and I can put it on a potter's wheel and make a horrible mess, but somebody who actually knows how to do pottery can put it on a potter's wheel and shape it into a beautiful bowl. We're creators in a secondary sense because we're made in the image of our creator. God called all things into existence from nothing. That's the beginning of Scripture, and it's unparalleled. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, you either believe that or you believe in the beginning there was a quantum fluctuation of a vacuum and by chance everything came about. Well, let's say how they would put it in modern scientific terms. Do you know what a quantum fluctuation of a vacuum is? No, nor do they. (laughs) Because they tell us that all known laws of physics break down at the quantum singularity. In other words, we've got no idea what happened at the beginning of the universe. No matter how high-sounding the ideas may be, and I've listened to some of these magicians talking on television. That's some of these scientists by that. I mean, magic and science often go hand-in-hand with humanists. The founding fathers of modern science, as we know it, were Bible-believing Christians anyway, like Galileo and Kepler and Pascal and others. I was watching a Canadian scientist a few days ago on television. He said, well, he was being asked about what's going to happen when we run out of natural resources in the universe, the sun burns out and so forth. He says, well, when we've exhausted our universe's natural resources, we will either create a new sun and fling it up into the sky, the heavens, or... We may be able to disturb space in such a way that we can disappear through a hatch in space into another dimension. And there may be infinite numbers of dimensions, and therefore when we use up one universe, we can escape into another. Now, this is serious science. You see, these are the magicians of our age. That's magic. Why? Because we want to escape our Creator. Anything, any idea to escape the Creator God of the book of Genesis will do. And you know when the, there's, a, there's a, uh, a shift going on, slow but it's happening, with respect to evolutionary ideology in our culture today, you know when neo-Darwinism gives way to another idea, it won't be biblical creation. Not among the humanists. It'll be some Gaia idea that the universe is a quantum computer, that it's, the universe itself is a kind of mother, mother earthism. I've read contemporary scientific apologists already advocating that sort of position. The co-discoverer of DNA, Sir Francis Crick, says the aliens brought life to Earth in the, uh, in the infinite past. Panspermia is, is, is what he's called it. The co-discoverer of DNA, aliens brought life to Earth. Well, anything to escape the book of Genesis. Now, am I mocking these people? No. When you lose your anchorage and your moorings in God and his revelation, you will run to any ridiculous idea. So Paul the Apostle says, do not have anything to do with myths and endless genealogies, endless origins, stories about origins and histories. 
very, very quickly because my time is gone on my preamble. The origin of the word Genesis. <laughs> the origin of the word Genesis simply means, of course, the Pentateuch, of which Genesis is a part. The Pentateuch simply means five books, and the first of those books is the book of Genesis, often referred to as the books of Moses, the law, which Paul refers to here in verse 7 uh, and verse 8 with respect to Timothy. And they're often, uh, the Hebrew Scripture's first book actually is Beresith, which literally means beginning, beginning. And we often uh, take a word from the first line of a hymn to name a hymn. Well, that's exactly what they were doing here. And in the third century before Christ, 70 scholars came together. They met in a place called Alexandria to translate the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek. That became known as the Septuagint. And in there, we have uh, the word for Genesis, genesios, and the anglicized version of genesios is genesis, and it simply means origin or genealogy. And actually, when you read the first 11 chapters of Genesis, in fact, as you read the book of Genesis itself, we see that that word genealogy holds the key to understanding the flow of history in the book of Genesis. Who wrote the book of Genesis? Well, <clears throat> there have, of course, been many different ideas, and I wish I had time to walk you through uh, these things. I don't have that time. I don't have that time this week if we're to make progress. But for many, many centuries, the authority and authorship of the Pentateuch was not questioned, but this questioning was kicked off by a Jewish philosopher, actually, named Benedict Spinoza in his book Tractatus Theologico-Politicus. And if you want to say that, make sure you've taken your false teeth and glued them in properly. <laughs> Tractatus theologico-politicus, and in that he challenged the uh, mosaic authorship of Genesis, largely because he wanted to mythologize and allegorize uh, the account of Genesis. And since then, particularly in the last 150 years, there's been a flood of uh, liberal scholarship disputing the mosaic authorship, a flood of liberal study. But what is it that the Word of God tells us, without going into any of what those liberal scholars have said? It says in 2 Peter 16, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's the doctrine of the inspiration of the Scriptures. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now the book of Genesis and the Scripture itself is either the gropings and ramblings of the Hebrew nation as best as they can work out, or it's the Word of God. Jesus affirmed it as the word of God. How did Jesus defend his own ministry? How did he fend off the challenges of Satan? Well, he said this, or did he? If you read Plato, Satan, you will note that it was said. If you refer to Seneca, if you have a look at Aristotle, if you study Philo, you will realize, no, he said, it is written man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God we have a choice as Christians the world has a choice we either live by God's word as Christ says by that which he has given to us or we live by some other authority and the question I often ask university students is this who are you going to believe in life because we all accept authority in life of some sort or another you know, not a single one of you here is without an authority in your life. We trust authority figures to some degree. That is, we believe our parents, maybe our teachers, maybe our professors, maybe our friends. 
maybe some extended member of the family, maybe Jerry Springer or Oprah, but we believe somebody. And sadly, some people would rather put their trust in those kind of figures than they would in the Word of God. We believe somebody. Whose authority do we build our lives upon? That of Christ or some other authority figure? Because all of us, in the end, receive authority. You know, many people think that Christians accept an authority and everybody else is detached and rational. That is, they only believe what their reason dictates to them. Do you know what a lot of rubbish that actually is? Some people believe that Christians believe in infallibility of God's Word, of an infallible Word, but nobody else does. That's not true. We either accept the infallibility of the Word of God or we accept the infallibility of the Word of men. Because we accept something as true. We either believe in the providence of God, the providence of God, or we believe in the providence of man and his states. We either believe in the authority of God's word, or we believe in the authority of some human personage or collection of human persons who will tell us what to believe and how to live. That is true for every single one of us here. So the question remains, who are we going to believe and what are we going to believe? Now maybe running through some of your minds as I even speak this is, yeah, but what about what my philosophy professor said and hey, my physics professor and my chemistry professor? Who has the greater authority? And where did they get their ideas from? Well, they got their ideas from another chemistry professor, and he got his ideas from another chemistry professor or another physics professor, and so forth, and round and round we go. Where does knowledge come from? What is the source of your knowledge and the source of my knowledge? It's either God and his creative act and his word to men, or it's by some other. And that is either the framework by which we build and understand this world. That is, our knowledge is either creatively reconstructive, thinking God's thoughts after him, as the astronomer Copernicus said, or we believe that our knowledge is original and we are creating reality for ourselves, as in line with modern philosophy. Now, I'm giving you a bit of a crash course here in worldview and philosophy, but it's important. These are the foundational, most fundamental questions that we can ever ask, and One of the reasons I'm a believer, one of the reasons I'm a believer is that God has made known this truth to me by the Holy Spirit. Is that why you're a believer? Or did you get there because of your great brain and your incredibly high IQ? No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Liberal commentators have said, and I just flick over that, that... uh, I wish I had time to deal with it in detail. I don't. This is not a seminary course. I've said that there were multiple writers to the book of Genesis and to the Old Testament. They called it the documentary hypothesis. It's now a bit of a passing fad. Even that is out of favor now with most liberal scholars. But when I was in theological seminary, this was the prevailing view. But Scripture tells us, and even today, increasingly modern scholarship is realizing that the authors ascribed to the Scripture are, in fact, correct. Most of the reasons why people denied that Moses was the author was because they couldn't believe there was high culture at the time of Moses. How can there possibly be writing and all of this high culture described in Genesis by the time of Moses? We were grunting around in caves, behaving like animals at that time. Surely it must have been written much, much, much later. See, we have a 
an evolutionary hypothesis, an evolutionary view of reality that then is imposed upon what we read and look at in history. But actually, we discover that writing appears simultaneously in about five to 6,000 years ago in Egypt, Mesopotamia, and the Indus Valley. Moses is indeed the author of the book of uh, the Pentateuch and is the collator and editor of the book of Genesis. How did he receive this book of Genesis? Well, one view uh, that has been discussed is that almost of dictation, that is of oral inspiration where God gives it to him directly. That's not a model we find in Scripture, though, except for the giving of the Ten Commandments. Others have talked about oral traditions being passed down and others actual written records that were passed down. Because Genesis is written as a narrative historical record like we find in the book of Kings or the book of Chronicles. And it seems that Moses acted as editor and compiler of documents that he received from the patriarchs that were passed down. This is another kind of documentary hypothesis, if you like, that literally there were the generations of Adam and the generations of Noah and the generations of the sons of Noah. And these records came into the possession of Moses and he acted as editor, compiler of these uh, documents. The book of Genesis is quoted to or alluded to or quoted more than 200 times in the New Testament and Moses is mentioned as the, the books of Moses more than 28 times. It just shows the significance of this book. So what I'm suggesting to you is when we read the book of Genesis, what we're reading is the account of Adam and Noah and Shem and Terah and others who wrote about things they had direct knowledge of in their lifetime. Adam was not a grunting animal scraping around in the dirt when he was created by God. But he had articulate speech and he could hear instruction from God and follow out those instructions. He could be the first zoologist and categorize all the animals with his paradisal brain. Absurd, I believe it to be true. The other story is far more absurd. That things create themselves, make themselves, construct themselves, build information out of nothing. Scholars then believe that uh, these sections in the book of Genesis, these transitional statements called a Toledoth, these are the generations of hold the key to understanding the book of Genesis. So we have these. I'll just fire them out to you quickly. The generation of the heavens and the earth, the book of the generations of Adam, the book of the generations of Noah, the book of the generations of the sons of Noah, the generation of Shem, the generation of Terah, the generation of Isaac, the generation of Jacob, and the generations of the sons of Jacob, taking us right through to the beginning of the book of Exodus. So there is a brief statement about the book of Genesis and its authorship. Um, John, what time are we supposed to be finishing now? Is it 10 past? Okay. So let me conclude then by just simply saying this. Genesis is absolutely crucial and absolutely central to us as believers and as Christians if we're going to begin to reconstruct a Christian view of reality for ourselves and for the next generation. If we're going to return in Canada to a Christian understanding of law and government. If we're going to see gun crime, and all the, all the problems that politicians talk about and Christians are concerned about. We often think the answer is demonstration. Well, let's drive a bus round, or let's go out wander around with plaques in Ottawa. Well, there's some value in demonstration, but you know, the only answer for Canada is regeneration and reconstruction. What do I mean by regeneration? I mean that at a grassroots level, 
all of us as believers, all of us as Christians, whether we're parents or just brothers and sisters or students, have to be living and articulating a life lived in Christ and submitted to the Word of God. And as we do, the knock-on effect will be remarkable. Genesis is absolutely central to that. I'm sure those of you who are parents here are concerned about your children. I'm concerned about my children. I have two little girls, and I hope to have more children. I'm not sure whether they're all going to be little girls. I could do with a break, but uh, (laughs) life is looking very expensive at the moment. But what kind of an education are my children going to receive? What are they going to be taught from 9 till 4, Monday through Friday? What kind of a church are my children going to grow up in? What kind of a Canada? What kind of a Toronto? What kind of a Winnipeg and Vancouver? What are the streets going to be like? What are the schools going to be like? What are the courts going to be doing? Are we going to be flung in prison and flogged? Well, it's possible, because it happens in various parts of the world today where my parents are missionaries in Pakistan, you might be executed for retaining a Christian faith or converting from Islam to Christianity. We mustn't take for granted that the remnants, do you know the freedoms and the blessings that we enjoy in Canada today still are merely the remnant of the Christian worldview here. It's the remnants of it. And we're seeing it, seeing it slip and slide. And if we root ourselves in God's Word and on the foundations which God's gives, God gives to us as we educate our children, as we teach our children, as we reach our neighbors and our friends, we can see our society and our families and our communities and our nation recovered so that there is a dominion from sea to sea that belongs to God. And the Scripture promises of the increase of His government and of His peace, there will be no end. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And he will do it through you and through me if we will come back to God's word and submission to Christ and build upon a foundation. No other foundation can be laid, the scripture says, than that which is laid, which is Christ. And if we build on any other foundation, we build with what? Wood, hay, stubble, straw. The wise man who built his house upon a rock is not simply a kid's Sunday school song. To build our lives upon a rock on the foundation which is Christ means a secure future for ourselves. Not just, so many Christians are concerned with what non-believers refer to as pie in the sky when you die. You know, the hope of heaven, the hope of glory is a real reality for the believer, but it's the kingdom of our God and of his Christ established in the earth. Now and for eternity. And we need to be taken up, not simply with hold the fort for I am coming, which is the mentality that I grew up in. The world's going to hell in a handbasket, hold the fort, sing a last hymn, light the last candle, as the, and just hope Jesus comes. Is that going to be our attitude for Ontario? For Canada? Or is this world the kingdom of his Christ? Is Canada, does Canada belong to God? Well, I believe it does. I believe Britain belongs to God. I believe Canada belongs to God. And it's the inheritance of the people of God to know what it means to have dominion in the earth and in the world under Christ. And so I want to encourage you this week as we look at the book of Genesis and as we look at some of the detail of the book of Genesis and what it's seeking to teach us, 
that that is my goal and my hope this week, that you'll be strengthened and encouraged and reinforced in the Christian worldview, that you'll be better equipped to share it with your friends, to teach your children, to teach it in your churches and in your Sunday school classes, so that we might be salt and light in the world, just as fresh IE are doing the same thing in their way, and you and yours are doing the same in your communities and in your families, that together as the people of God, we're going to see change in this land for Christ. So I look forward to seeing you in the next sessions. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.